Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. In this episode, Brian and Jonathan will be joining us to talk about how they started in the real estate industry and how they were able to expand their market from Alabama to neighboring cities. They also discuss the business strategies and approach they use to operate efficiently in the market, how to leverage and use technology, and the reason why real estate professionals are not bridging the gap to investing. Enjoy. Sweet. Well, thanks, Brian and Jonathan, for coming on with us today. You guys are with AHI Properties out of Alabama. And Brian, you're the current RVP for NARPOM. And you guys both co-host the Profitable Powerhouse Properties podcast. Is that right? We do. We do. We've been doing that, gosh, for two two years. years. It's hard to believe. Two years now. And we started in 19 and just had the opportunity to do that. And and the focus of that podcast, we, we focused it on investor education. So we, we deal with a lot of different investors. And what we found ourselves doing over a period of time was that transition that some property management company and firms make to where they're transitioning from accidental landlords to professional landlords. So we were making that transition and, and saw that opportunity, particularly in that middle ground area where we had investors that were focused on you know buying investment property for different strategies, whether that's active or passive income. So it's, it's worked well. We've been successful with that as well as the migration of our business model. And we've been focused on that for the last, this is our seventh year really to focus on that, on that changeover in our business. Nice. And then kind of backing up a little bit before that, like mm-hmm. how'd you guys both get into real estate like in general? You, me first? Probably. You go first. <laughs> so <laughs> growing up, I mean, I'm significantly younger than Brian, which not to throw you on the spot there, buddy, but just, for just poke, that out. Poke, poking it. a little bit there. Huh? Uh, look, we're, we're friends as, as well. So it works. But my family was always in real estate. I grew up, my stepdad is a broker. My mother's got a real estate license. Growing up, one of my family friends was a broker, a Remax broker and like just close in that kind of business all throughout growing up. My parents own a number of investment properties, rental properties, stuff all over Birmingham, essentially, and then vacation stuff down to the beach. So, so growing up, I knew about it. I understood it. I understood what it was anyways. And so in 2007, I got my real estate license with a, just a Realty South, which was a small, I mean, it was big when I was at Realty South. It was a, yeah, it was a, the largest real estate company the, in the state of Alabama at the time. At the time. So yeah. And, and I was got gobbled up by Warren Buffett. Exactly. So. But I, I was 21 years old and I was like, I can probably do this. I know how to sell things. I'm okay at that. And, and the first year of real estate was excellent. I mean, I did really well for a 21-year-old that didn't know what he was doing. You know, I'd stumble into closings like, am I supposed to be here? And they'd be like, yeah, here's you some money. Go away. <laughs> I mean, you know, you get through it. And then the real estate market really crashed in Birmingham in 2008 and 2009. And I went from a really high year to whoa, second jobs, you know, trying to you know, make some money work, make some ends meet. And, you know, got connected with some investors that my family, friends that were real estate agents that are selling, you know, three and four and $500,000 houses didn't want to deal with these, you know, 30 and $40,000 little investment properties. I don't, I'm not going to deal with this guy. You go work with it. Here's a bunch of foreclosures, figure out how that works. And so that's, I mean, that's how I survived in real estate was, you know, I mean, working other jobs also, but, you know, getting through with those investors and working with trying to understand how investing in real estate, really what parts are the important parts of making money. It's not just buy it and sell it later. It's buy it and will it cash flow now? How much will it cash flow? And can I leverage this cash flow later on something else? Or can I hang on to it and and allow that to make enough money that I can make an upgrade here or there in what period of time? And just learning little things from these handful of little investors that I just kind of stumbled into. Over the years, my wife actually started working here at AHI and introduced me to Brian and at a Christmas party some number of years ago. And me and Brian talked at the Christmas parties. And after a couple of years of that, I was like, Brian, why don't, why don't you hire me here? 
I think I could, <laughs> I could, I could work for you. And apparently I tricked him enough into saying yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So my past is a little more checkered, if you will. But so I grew up in West Virginia. I'm a transplant to Alabama. I have more or less been here since 1996 when I got out of the military after nine years of active service. Kind of did a few things. I, I actually came to work for our corporate housing company, which belongs to my, my partner in AHI Properties, but my wife has ran that company for the last 30 years, 31 years now. So they specialize in fully furnished short-term corporate rentals, typically apartments, do some houses, but that kind of came on later. But I worked for them for a couple of years and then went back out on my own in a contractor related field. I actually got invited to come back to Alabama. I'd moved back home to West Virginia. My parents are entrepreneurs. They have automotive parts stores and garages. So I was helping them expand their business for a couple of years. But Ralph's partner actually invited me to come back to Birmingham and really to form what is now AHI Properties. We didn't have a clue that's what it was going to become at the time. So that was in 2000. But the goal for coming back is we, we actually saw a transition of need for for rental homes, A-class rental homes specifically, for a fully furnished corporate leaseback model. So we came in and started investing in A-class properties. And I think initially we purchased within a, a 24-month period, we had 52 A-class assets that we were doing corporate leasebacks to particularly one auto manufacturer and a lot of their suppliers. And moved from that model, the same Realty South that he spoke of was getting out of the rental business and approached us because we've always done that short-term piece with them. And then they convert it to a longer-term resale to people relocating into the Birmingham market. So we ended up purchasing their rental division, which was called Rent South. I think that's one of two acquisitions we've done through the years. We, we had 109 properties with them, all accidental landlords. And brought them in. I think I probably still have maybe five of those left now since 2000. We looked at that the other actually. day. I think it is five. We, yeah. we looked at those the other yeah. day. So that's, it's, a, uh, that's a small percentage for sure. It is. And again, it was accidental landlords. And we stayed in that model really up until 07, 08 happened. And then we, we started figuring out we need to do some sort of transition. We, we survived that just fine. But our corporate housing side of the business really drove the early years with their needs. And their needs specifically were an example. Best example would be if we had 30 people coming in for a 90-day project in the Birmingham, that model in the late 90s, early 2000s changed into you know a dozen, a dozen or less people coming in for a year. And with that, they wanted to rent a house versus an apartment. They wanted to bring their pets, their families, you know, that sort of thing. So that's what drove that fully furnished model, which we still do well today. You know, we bought those houses initially with a strategy of holding for seven and then flipping those out for retail resales. Got stuck with 07 and 08, started having to replace some systems, reset those calendars again. And matter of fact, we're on coming up on third, third resets on a lot of those. We've sold yeah, we a few have. of them, but, and added a few, but really just diversifying that that portfolio. So I, I came into it first before I was ever really into real estate as an agent or a broker coming into it as an investor on that front. And then we've been able to blend those products pretty well. And then, you know, as I said, Ralph and I really dove into it. Around 2015, we really got serious about focusing on getting out of that accidental landlord model into that intentional investor and, and more importantly, that institutional investor and started pursuing that. And that really exploded our growth. The only other acquisition we've done, to give you kind of an idea, we did a 33 home acquisition, management acquisition. So we've only acquired that 109 and that 33, but we maintain about 80 properties that we own within our portfolio. Otherwise, we typically push 12, 1300 homes under management to kind of give you an idea. And we started it all here in Birmingham, our corporate housing side of our business has 10 office locations, mainly throughout the Southeast, all the way up to uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, but then we're as far West as Oklahoma City and Tulsa. And then we've grown the, the property management model into all four Alabama major marketplaces, Huntsville, uh, Birmingham, Montgomery, and Mobile. And then we've expanded into Oklahoma City, was our newest expansion a couple of years ago. And it's, you know, it's kind of the mentality of, if it makes sense to go there with a client to get us seated and started, and then we go and we learn that market, develop it, and then grow it from there. 
So nice. that's been our growth strategy. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. With your guys' acquisitions, are you guys just in staying in those major Alabama markets or are you going out to the tertiary markets too? Major marketplace. We try to stay 35, 40 minutes outside the metros maximum. So we were able to... Continue our level of service. Stretch us to like forty-seven yeah. minutes. Yeah, but I don't <laughs> know. I don't like it. to be able to do that. So I'll we, come and draw a line in the road and go. We're not going past this line. They'll say, "But come on." Yeah, okay. We just we just want to focus. It's twenty percent less, just just a mile further. <laughs> I'm a big softy. They talked me into it, AJ. <laughs> so we well, just we just figured out from a, as you guys probably know, just from the management <clears throat> perspective. I mean, when you're developing out your because we actually outsource our, our vending and we manage it in-house. So we do a lot of project management pieces and that sort of thing. But to build those vendor networks and to do it really well, if you stay within that radius for us, I mean, it's a little slower. It's, I mean, you can be anywhere in Birmingham in 40 minutes from one side of town to the cross side of town. And that's kind of the same for the markets that we're in. Even OKC's comparable to Birmingham with you know, population of the metro population is 1.125 million, I believe. The Tulsa and Oklahoma are about the same size. So a little more spread out, but you can still, just the way the traffic's laid out, you can still be anywhere in that marketplace in about 40 minutes. And that's kind of what our focus has been. And even our corporate housing offices, we are in Atlanta. And I won't say I'll never go to Atlanta, but, I, you know, having been the Atlanta chapter president and understand how many companies, really good companies are over there, I've got, you know, I'd rather compete with friendly competitors like Matthew Whitaker yeah. uh, here locally <laughs> in a few other markets, as opposed to 25 or 30 good managers yeah. in, in Atlanta <laughs> proper. So, but really it's, it's really focusing on those B markets and just allowing us to have that flexibility and to be a heavy hitter the moment we hit the, hit the market and really have that focus on quality across the market. So if you're, you know, we have a lot of investors that actually invest with us in, in multiple marketplaces and, and consistently get the same product from one market to the next. So that's really our focus. It's, it's not not a, just a cookie cutter corporate approach, but it's really hands-on, specialized to the market, but ultimately you get that same practice and skill set well, across multiple markets. One of the things that I like about us that, I mean, I do our business development, so I'm talking with a lot of our new clients, whether they're in Mobile or Montgomery or wherever they happen to be. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of them. And one of the things that our size being in the different markets that we are in, even if we are in, and, and Mobile is just a good example because it's, it's our smallest market, number of properties. A normal property manager in that area that had the same number of properties that we do would not have the resources to have the kind of systems in place that we carry with us. And so it helps us being, you know, anchored here in Birmingham with the resources that we have allowing the software that we use in Mobile, allowing us to have the resources, the vendors, the you know technology pieces that we all get because we have 1,200-ish properties. That makes us have the ability to have some extra bells and whistles that another 100-home property management company wouldn't be able to afford, really. That helps us in some of these markets that if we want to branch out, if we start a new market that, that's in a, maybe a B-class market, we can come in there ready to go. We're not starting from scratch, even if we've still got to find like the local talent, we've still got to learn the local market. We are still coming in with all these resources ready to go. Like All we got to do is find the local talent here, plug them into our systems, teach them how to use it. We're we're as good as we are in any other market. Yeah, it kinda, it's kind of what we talked about the last board meeting for NARPM, AJ, in, in which I talk, talked about creating that stickiness and really understanding the importance of having a, a larger operation with more systems in place and versus a mom and pop shop and what, what we can give you in creating a stickiness factor with your residents, you know, staying in the property for longer periods of time, doing those rental increases, but at the same time keeping your owners for a longer period of time because we're giving them benefits that they can't otherwise get through a, a local mom and pop operation. I'm not going to lie. I hear a lot of people from NARPM talk about the churn that they have. And like Chris and I just have not experienced a lot of churn. We maybe have like one or two clients leave us a year. And like I'm hearing from some other people, like some maybe companies a little bit larger than us, but they're, they're losing like a hundred or 200. And I'm like, yeah, that's, but, that's it, a lot to replace sometimes. It, it, you know, and sometimes it happens. We just off-boarded 144 mid-January, but it, it was a recline. It's only one client. One yeah. client, though. And that's only half their portfolio. But they were internalizing <laughs> their 
their Birmingham operation. So internalizing the management of it because they can handle that piece, but we, we still manage in another marketplace for them. So, but we knew that coming into it at some, at some point you take that client on that's their in, in strategy. So yeah. knowing that in advance, I mean, yes, it's, it's a lot of cash flow and it's hard to replace, but it's really not hard to replace. You, you take them in, whether it's another large chunk or you're taking 20 or 30 or 40 from an investor coming in and, and put some cash down. It's like today we were talking to an investor that had keyed up. They've got 5 million to deploy immediately as soon as we find the assets. So we're, that's pretty consistent with us mm-hmm. is trying to find assets, whether it's, you know, whether it's already existing inventory or, or land so they can develop it and build, which to me is pretty exciting. I, I loved it when we started taking on new construction stuff because I hadn't seen new construction in our space in the rental space since, you know, prior to leading up to 07 and 08. Yeah. You, know, you had some of it after that, it just, it dried up because there was no new construction going on in the marketplaces. So, so it's nice to see that rebounding and build that inventory. And, I, you know, it's just the perfect storm right now. It's a great time to be in, in not only real estate, but in rental property specifically. Yep, right. And that sounds like a great problem to have. You need to help somebody deploy $5 million. That also sounds like it makes kind of developing and finding a new market a little bit easier because if that investor is trusting you guys, you'll be able to deploy, you know, say some of those funds into Oklahoma City or into, you know, one of one of your newer markets. I'm really interested to hear more about how you guys are strategizing moving into, you know, like, yeah, just walk us through your kind of your startup in Oklahoma City. I'd love to hear that. Well, it's kind of, and I won't say we'll do this every time, but we, we went to Oklahoma City and, and, and I probably should backtrack a little bit. So with the 10 corporate housing office locations, they're brick and mortar. So I already have the hardest part of it done. So as Jonathan said, it's really about hiring local talent, deploying systems, providing whatever equipment you need to get going. So really the interest being there and, and OKC and in particular, we, you know, we opened out there with a small investment client with about 25 houses, but we knew the opportunity was there. We'd already had the corporate housing model in place for about six years prior to that. And we're really encouraged by everything going on in the city. Not only that, you have Tulsa that's a little over an hour away by interstate. And they're two distinctly different markets, even though they're similar in size, they have a completely different feel. So getting into the marketplace and knowing that we're able to grow it and it's met and really exceeded our expectations because the opportunities just keep coming at us. And it's almost like, you know, when you go to an event like an IMN, if you guys have ever been to those or plugged into that network, which is where we started building relationships with larger investors, just paying attention and keeping your ear to the ground of what's going on nationally, what's getting the national attention. And while it's nice to hear Birmingham, it's like, you know, we've got major players just now coming to Birmingham and they're way too late, for way, too late. way too late into the game. So trying to pick up on what's happening early and when you start hearing about it, it's probably already been there for five or six years already. Somebody's already been working it and having great success at it. And that's really what we started to see with Oklahoma. Oklahoma City in particular started getting some attention. And it wasn't long before we picked up another client with 128 properties adding into that portfolio and then individuals and then some, you know, intentional investors with pockets of five or 10 or whatever. So developing the marketplace and just deploying those strategies, that's, that's kind of our, I guess our first approach is, okay, where do we have, what makes sense out of what we have brick and mortar wise to focus on? And realistically, you know, we've had this discussion, a couple of great markets that we would really like or Chattanooga, which we're in Louisville, Kentucky. It's another market that we're in and currently servicing Lexington as well. So we'll tend to look at those markets first, but also have opportunities from clients that say, Hey, we're building, you know, 200 houses over here. Will you guys take a look at it? And if it makes sense, numerically, of course, we'll come alongside that and we can easily deploy a branch market in the vicinity of where we're at. And in some cases like Montgomery, we didn't have a presence in Montgomery, but a Montgomery marketplace is an hour and 15 minutes south of our Birmingham office. It's the capital of Alabama. I mean, it just makes sense for us to have something there. So, and we do enough corporate housing business and they service that market from our Birmingham location. We needed, you know, we needed their block of business to give us the footprint where we could have a stationary office of benefit to them as well as us. 
in a prime location in the city. And so we just went with it. But, you know, we went down there with, gosh, 168 properties initially, which was a little different than the 25. Sure. That was kind of a no-brainer. But that's kind of kind of how we approach it. We're going to figure out the marketplace, look at the dynamics from the real estate perspective, and then focus in on those, you know, look at it as a macro market and then dive into it on a micro level and figure out the different aspects of the city and develop those markets and then try to develop those relationships with the investors. And one thing that we've been successful in doing with that, we talk about systems, but one of the one of the key ingredients we had early on was developing a relationship to where we could, you know, we could tap into master policies on the yeah. insurance side and develop those master policy opportunities for investors that wanted to, particularly for investors through like Roofstock or one of those platforms that want to buy in, in multiple areas, multiple marketplaces, multiple states, being able to be that, that firm that brings you the opportunity, hey, you can buy your insurance through here and you can have a property in Michigan and Alabama, you know, Oregon, California, wherever you want to have it, and you can all have them under the one, same master policy. Yeah. That was something no one was doing at the time. We've been doing that for several years now. But it just gives you that ability just to transfer that knowledge of, hey, we have systems that work across multiple platforms, and we're happy to help you even when you're outside of our marketplace. Mm -hmm. I am probably one of the, you know, number one endorsees of, of NARPM operators. And, you know, the first thing I'll do, even in an area I don't know, I'll go to NARPM's website and I'll figure out who, who the MPMs are here. yeah in the area. If there's no MPMs, who the RMPs are, and, and really reach out to those people and, and see if they're going to be a good fit. We, we have that all the time. I mean, we're some of our clients that we have are buying in other states and marketplaces. Some of them are within my region, which is kind of nice being the Southeast region of, of NARPM, but identifying operators that are going to be a good fit and not, you know, just because they're a NARPM operator doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be a good fit for a very sophisticated investor that has high, high demands. And, you know, that's a reflection on all of us. So whether we can operate with, within their requirements and expectations and exceed those or not. So that's, that's kind of our strategy. And it's, it's one of those, I always say my, my dad and grandfather always told me, you know, you'll be successful in business. If you do what you say, when you say you're going to do it, that's, that's the two golden rules to follow. So <laughs> yeah, that's pretty solid sound advice from dad. <laughs> so you guys are kind of anchored through your corporate business, through your corporate rentals business. I mean, at least you've got brick and mortar space in right. all of the locations where you have property management. Like that's that's a pretty huge advantage when it comes to expansion. Because it is. There's there's you know, there's different operating strategies out there. You know, I know you guys probably both know Jen Stoops, but you know, I've talked to her in detail about their operation and, and the idea of having a hub office and, and really going back to one of the early questions you had about servicing areas outside the major metros, which is what piqued my interest with that. It's being able to service some of these smaller communities that are, you know, 45 minutes an hour away from the metro areas. And how do you, how do you do that successfully? And I think they have a great model that allows them to do that Oh, I agree. Uh, because they're, they're servicing about 10 different marketplaces with a centralized hub office. And, you know, the illustration she always gives is the hub and the, and the spokes on the wheel, mm -hmm. which is a great analogy, but, so there's, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can set your business up. And well, then that's, again, that's, that's kind, of, that's kind of back to the technologies piece. That's the kind of thing that you have to have in place to be able to do something like that. Yeah. And we have some technology, we have a lot of technologies in place that allow us to operate efficiently in our market space. But like well, COVID's probably enhanced yeah, that. COVID definitely has so, yeah. for a lot of people. But I mean, there, there was a time when we showed properties that we had a leasing manager would go out visit the property with the tenant. And that's how we lease properties. And he's a great salesman. We do. I mean, like we've been there's, doing, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that still do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, <laughs> yes. Yes. And they need to listen to this podcast and just, they need to listen to a few people. But so we, we, we went with a self-showing option in when 2018. No, it was, it was actually, well, we were with them from 17 forward, but we yeah. only went self-showing honestly late 18. So yeah, so we've only been doing it a couple of years. Yeah, but it was it was such a once we like flipped that switch and started going. Can you imagine us trying to go back to not? Oh no! And then and then like I said, once COVID happened, it just became the natural. It was everybody's actually yeah. unexpected. So, well, then the ability to 
you know, talk with clients like, okay, no matter, no matter what size you are, you're, you're probably working with some out-of-state investors, likely. I mean, if, you, if you're a good enough operator, you're, you're likely to be working with some out-of-state clientele that's, you know, interested in your market. And if you know your market well enough, you need to be able to present that well enough. And these Zoom calls, like what we're on right here, this has been such a tool that I wish I had, you know, 10 yeah. years ago plus to like be able to just operate this way. When, let, let me explain to you my market. Let me pull up let my screen my and show, right. let me show you what I'm talking about here. I mean, I do it. Brian, Brian will walk past my desk all the time. He sees me on two screens. I've got a zoom call over here. Polygons drawn out. Drawn polygons on maps explaining like, well, this is, this is a micro market inside a micro market inside Birmingham. And we're going to talk about why this street is better than this street, why you need to buy this property. And then ultimately we're going to manage this property after you purchase it. And it's going to look like this. You can't do that over the phone. You can't do that when you meet someone for lunch at a restaurant. And that's great to sit there and have a good meal with somebody, but it's not exactly an effective business strategy. It's not, it's not a good way to get someone to, they're not going to sign that management agreement that you got in your pocket that you're sitting there. Let's have some beers and you'll sign this. You're not displaying your expertise or your knowledge of the market. Maybe you can talk someone through it, but when you can show them on their own screen, this is what I'm talking about. And this is why, and here's the data to prove it because here, here's the data. Let me show you why that's important. And then this is a cash flow projection of what that looks like. Ta-da. And that's, do you and that's why buy we have this? success with consultation. It's really yeah. dialing it down and not, not just keeping it very generic. I mean, you, you speak with a lot of agents that want to work with investors. They're really key toward retail resale, but they speak in generalities. So it's, it's kind of like a call he took yesterday. He was telling me about it's just like this guy just knows he wants to spend money in Birmingham. He has no idea what he what he wants, where he wants, any of that. What's the rent like very in Birmingham? General numbers on the entire metro area. It's like, well, you know, you need to dial it in much deeper than that. So, but you know, the thing with like Zoom technology, we were using Zoom technology a couple of years ago. So before it even became a thing that it is today with with COVID, but just dialing in and even having those bad conversations with your owners where you've got a problem solve, work those out. I prefer to do all that stuff on, on zoom. And then we have larger clients that we have either weekly or every other week meetings with foreign and domestic in which we're all, we're all plugged in. And that was going on before, yeah. before COVID and everybody, I mean, there's just a lot of buy-in and we've taken it kind of to the next step. I mean, one of the things we have opted to do in, in 2021, I think, AJ, you and I were talking about this the other day is to actually have those, those quarterly Zoom calls, which are by invitation. We kind of set the programming. Our managers are all involved in different branch locations and providing the education piece to our owners by our SVP and then building upon that for the next one. And we cover what we want to cover over four of those meetings per year. And the podcast piece, in addition to what I mentioned earlier, we use a lot of that as education where we push it out to potential owners on the front end. And it helps them make their decision really, really quickly as to whether or not they want to use this or not just based on Yeah, they feel like they know you after yeah. they've listened to you guys talk. Yeah. That technology, you know, self-showing lockboxes in Zoom, it's just, it's crazy what it's going to do to the market and just the adoption of those technologies, like especially for property management. If, you, if you're not adopting it, then you are just going to totally be left behind. Prices are going to get probably driven down a little bit lower as the technology makes it easier. Well, but what we also find is some of your, some of your systems that, that are great ideas to you. I mean, getting that broadcast across to your owners in a way that they can understand <laughs> it, just like, like security, security deposit replacement option, you know, which one, has been gangbusters since, it has, since we went live with it. But we, we chose to go with a company called Rhino after many years of, of searching and we, we love it. And, but just getting that message out, the the advantage of it. The, you mean we're not going to have a security deposit? Yeah, it, yes, you are. Come on. Listen to what I said earlier. But when you transition <laughs> to intentional investors and professional investors, they understand that. It's a, it's a leveraging. Yeah. And they've been able to flip that around. So you've got not only, well, you don't have a security deposit, but you actually have more leverage because they're coming in at 1.5 or two times the rent on the policy and having the experience of, of having them pay out some policies and understanding how that 
system works and how easy it works and being able to report those results back to your clients. But just being able to broadcast that, it's kind of what I was telling Jonathan the other day. The beauty of it is you can record this. Even if you jump on a Zoom to just record it and then blast it out, you're saying at one time versus having yes. an hour-long discussion with a yeah. potential client, having the same discussion, the same discussion. <laughs> Which I have those same discussions every day. You, the same you do, but we also have multiple branch managers doing the same thing yeah. with business development. So you're, you're ensuring a consistent message is mm -hmm. going out versus relying on somebody 200 miles away that is out of eyesight and earshot of you as to what they're saying, how they're delivering it, what, what promises they may be making to a potential client. So it's, it's, it's so, really extremely big advantage uh, Brian, you touched on kind of the accidental landlord and then the intentional investor. Mm -hmm. And we've always seen, you know, sometimes that accidental landlord actually turns into the intentional investor. Yes. So, That's the best guy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they go on that journey with you and they're just so thankful. But what do you think it is that takes that accidental landlord or, or maybe it's a real estate agent or a mortgage broker who kind of like sees the light what is it that spark that gets them into, oh, wow, I should be investing intentionally and buying some of these properties and creating long-term wealth? Uh, you know, I think, I guess when we were chit-chatting before we started recording, but we were talking about one, one of the focuses we were talking about is, is strategy, whether that be active or passive strategy. I think what gets them really focused is when they're able to understand that they, A, should have diversified investments. So whether that's, you know, whatever that looks like, but real estate should be part of that diversification. And then within the real estate component of it is back to what Jonathan was talking about, you know, whether it's a buy and hold strategy, we also have some investors that do, they'll come in, they'll do a rehab, they'll do investor to investor sales because they understand there's a market place for that. And Especially there's a standing order marketplace for that. And then we have the traditional you know, the, the folks that want to come in, buy it, and they want to rehab it to retail flip and they're reselling it retail because the retail sales market is so hot. So any of those strategies or better yet, a combination of those strategies seems to work well. And once they dive into the different layers of that onion and understand, hey, we can do, we don't have to get stuck into one mold. We can, we can do multiple things with this and really create not only some instant cash flow and wealth, but also some longer term stuff, depending on what you're buying, you know, the likelihood of equity gain down the road. And, and I mean, there's all different, every, every marketplace really has those models within those areas, those market areas that you can develop it out. You can buy a couple here, there. And I, I think I learned that lesson when I started first dealing with investment groups back in, you know, probably 05, 06 and leading into 07 to where, oh, you, you have properties here, but you also have properties in Ohio and Indiana and, you know, and Texas and understanding why they chose to do that and having those interviews with them and understanding, okay, well, somebody explained it that, you know, you should try to do this and not put all your, all your properties into one, one locale. But I, I think that's important. And we, you know, we have a long standing history of working with realtors and most property management firms do. And our strategy with that is on our sales side, we're, we're only as a company focused on investors. We are not focused on retail sales listings. We're not, we're not being competitive. We leave that to the retail specialist. We work hand in hand. We pay good referrals. We always have the guarantee that Somebody refers somebody in, they get first crack if that person wants to resell or buy a property, depending on whether it's a tenant or an owner, and standing by that and have a long-term reputation of doing that. But going out to sales market meetings at real estate offices and just educating them on how we can be a tool for them, that's the important thing. Right now, we're trying to figure out, okay, one of the things we were talking about a couple of weeks ago was, was creating the education piece for the agent that's been in retail resale that really doesn't understand how to deal with investors and understanding how they can analyze properties correctly for an investor and then turning that into additional business where they're referring properties into us for management. What I think was the most fun aspect of specifically that I had a, I have still, I guess technically it's under contract, but we had a property that we were selling for one of our investors. It's a, it's a multifamily unit and there's not 
Like if you're trying to buy multifamily in Birmingham, <laughs> there's like one, Good maybe stuff. two yeah. options. Maybe there's nothing. There's nothing. So I was at home and my phone rang and I didn't recognize it. It's probably a real estate agent. I'll pick it up and answer. And it's this, this lady that's telling me about my, my property and she wants to come and see it. But on my listing, cause it's a fully occupied unit. I mean, and the way, and, and most real estate investment, real estate agents understand why I have these in there. But she asked these questions and was like, okay, hang on, let's talk. She was like, so it says that there's no showings allowed unless there's a, unless there's an accepted offer. How are we supposed to make an offer if we can't see it? And I'm like, because it's the numbers and there's tenants in place. And so there's, That's the the tenant. it's investment <laughs> property. And she was like, well, I don't understand that. And I was like, okay, well, you're not going to get this property because we're under contract. Just, I'm sorry. Yeah, they, it's not going to happen. They don't understand the true definition of you'll, you'll have your ability to do your yeah, diligence. There's diligence. In the buying process. It sounds like, but let's talk about this. Where did your client come from? I want you to be able to talk to your client, you know, in an educated fashion about this. It's like, well, I paid for Zillow leads. I've really only been in real estate for like a handful of months. And she's super sharp, actually. Like I talked to her for probably an hour, hour and a half on the phone and she's there. She's great. She can present an idea if she knows what the idea is incredibly well. She's got that great retail real estate agent personality. I'm sure in the end of 2021, she's going to be a great agent out there, you know, when it comes to this, but the investment market and how that truly works and the little tricks, if she was going up, you know, against an investment property against me, why I'm pretty sure that I would probably win that property just because of the strategies of how to offer and leverage some aspects. And it's not just a number on a paper that you're trying to make work. It's, we've got these other little fancy things like, all right, we're going to do our contingency period like this. And I'm going to leverage this aspect here. And you know, we'll pay your closing costs for you know, whatever we've got to little like fool around with here to make some things work. Well, I'm driving it with, with actual data and not, yeah. uh, not forecasting, but Correct. really just using the data. To and so, I mean, I talked to her for a couple of hours just about like, what I do and how that works and where I get my numbers from and why I know this, that, or the other thing. Like, well, how do you know that the rent values are, are this? Because what they rent for, but this is what, this is how, I, where I get that. So she's like, all right, so this week I'm going to go and meet her and like a handful of her little real estate agent friends. We're going to learn from Jonathan about how real estate investment works and I'm like, I appreciate that. I'd love, I'd love to teach you. Let, let me, we're going to start at a very low basic level because it's good for you to know this kind of thing so that when you're dealing with a lot of out-of-state investors that are trying to buy, when they throw out, what's the gross yield on this? What's the cap rate on this? That you don't just sit there and go, yeah, it's good. It's, it's probably real good. And you don't know what that means. Do you think that, you know, they as realtors will eventually, you know, like want to learn more about it and become investors themselves? Some will, for sure. Some will. I think it's a product of the marketplace. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, when 07 and 08 happened and then we had a, a larger than normal foreclosure marketplace and then construction ceasing and, you know, throw in all the different variables, retail sales initially took a dip, people get out of the industry it's kind of survival mode. So right now they're, they're feasting on the residential sales market. Right. But mm -hmm. when, at some point when that starts to diminish or go away, then the focus is going to be back on the other side of the business, which is going to be the investment, the, the property management side of it. Not, um, not all of them will retain it. No. I mean, they, they definitely won't, no. but some will, some that will. And I think this is also when we were talking earlier about what makes that transition from accidental landlord to intentional landlord. Mm -hmm. I think, this kind of conversation is one of those things that, that triggers that it's because when they talk with us or when they talk with Brian and, and you know, they'll be talking about their one property that they had to move out of because they couldn't sell it and they needed to downsize. They'll be asking a question about, well, you know, how do we handle this maintenance item here? I've had a tenant there for 14 years and I don't even know what remarketing a property looks like because we've never had to do it. That, that kind of thing. It's pretty typical for some of our, you know, prop, for our accidental landlords that have had properties for a long time with us. So we're going through like, well, this is how we do this. And this is why we do this. And you give them some anecdotal story about this is one of our investors did something like this. And this is how that turned out. They're like, Oh, okay. And they start hearing 
some success stories from, and then they'll, it, it always starts out with like that real innocent question. So one of my friends has a rental property in and they will throw out some area that I know like you've waited 10 years too long to invest in that area. You've missed the boat. So tell me about Avondale. And I'm like, ha, 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 yeah, you want to spend a half a million dollars? You're a bit late to invest in it. But they, little, they've heard it. Right. But it gets them in. Well, what is the next Avondale? What is the next Hoover? What is the next big explosive market going to be? Do you know? Do you have any idea? And I'm like, so, yes. Do we want to talk about that now? And then it just leads to that, that aspect. So, so I, got a, I got a question for you guys. Like the people that are seeing that sort of stuff, like the real estate agents and, you know, the mortgage brokers that are doing all that stuff, those professionals, like why is it that not more of them are investing in real estate and becoming those real estate investors? You know, the funny thing, and we were talking about this three, three and a half weeks ago, because there's a real estate agent that we both really like. We deal with them a lot in closings. And he was on somebody else's show and they were asking the question. And the angle which he came back with for an answer to that exact question was, no, I don't invest in real estate because I don't want there to be any conceived conflict of interest. I want, I want my clients to know I am focused on their needs but again, it was, you know, it was kind of generic responses to investor-related questions on marketplace and just trying to, you know, attract the flies with, with sugar. But it's you know, that's, that's one strategy. Um, yeah, it is. But I have an answer. It's because they don't have all the data. They have partial right, data. That's right. They have a lot of hearsay. They don't see the end result because they're they're agents instead of property managers. The proof is always in the pudding, and if they don't have the pudding, they're not making the pudding. They send it off to someone else to. You know, I had this idea and I think it'll work. Can you guys make yeah. that work? And then it's closed, wash my hands and I'm yeah, done. Yeah, quite honestly, the good experience in an investment, in a real estate investment is the property manager relationship. Yeah. How well can that property manager manage that property for you? That's where all of your, honestly, that's where your cash flow is coming from on the buy and hold strategy stuff. And that's where they don't have the, the don't have the data. data. Yeah, they, they don't, don't have it. So they'll, they'll sit there and a good example of talking about him is, you know, you'll start to hear things. And as a real estate agent, you're not doing a lot of renting, usually. Just just typically in Birmingham, a lot of the real estate agents, they're worried about sales. They don't really track what rental values are. They might, and this guy does. He knows what things pop up on the market for, but we all know advertising a market price for a thing and actually signing a lease or something, that's a big difference. And if somebody puts something in his ear or you hear, you see one Zillow pop up at, you know, 950 in a, in a market where typically they're getting 800 or 850 and that's what the leases are actually being signed for. Well, you see 950 and you say, well, yeah, there's properties over here, you know, leasing for 950. That's what you say. And that's what makes sense. Cause you saw this one, one does not mean that's what they lease for. That means one of them was marketed for that. But then that 950 gets rounded up to, yeah, they're like a thousand, you know, this whole area rents for like a thousand dollars a month and no, it doesn't. One property was advertised for 950. The majority of them rent for 875 or 825, whatever the number happens to be. And but they don't have that end result data because they're not managing the property in the end. And so that they hear these horror stories of, well, I mean, that's what they they want to do. And they don't have enough data to truly drive them into. I think I don't. They don't have the confidence to pull it off because they might hear one of their clients come back to him and say, well, I mean, I knew it was supposed to rent for a thousand, but man, it sat on the market. So, for, and, and so I, personally, I personally went through that back in 05 and 06 when we had a decent sized group out of California that was buying property in Alabama following Katrina because there were some great tax benefits and, and write-offs there, but they were buying new construction, but they were relying on the sales agents to provide them with rental comps. And across the board, rental comps were 250 to $300 per month too high which obviously affected their cash flow numbers. And to explain that to somebody living in California, seeing California price points and just realizing how cheap real estate is in Alabama, it was an easy sell. But the problem became once the closing happened, property was turned over to the manager. And then the expectation before we ever got to lay hands on it was you're going to rent for X. And it was really Y is where you needed to be, right? So just being able to to negotiate through that and, and work that scenario. But really make it tough when the real estate agents set you up for failure. That, that's right. That's right. So. <laughs> 
So you guys mentioned that the property managers have the keys to the castle. And so why aren't there more property managers who are investing in real estate themselves? That's a great question. Time. When I have an LLC to do it. I mean, I had the time to build an LLC and we've got one. Brian's got LLCs. We do. We would like to do it more. It's, we see that it can be done. We know that it can be done. But I have my clients are more important than my own portfolio unless I quit here and start doing my own. And we do. Like, I do yeah, it's not Brian you know, doesn't. I, I know the way we operate is so we don't sit around and save the best deals for ourselves. Correct. Cherry pick out of what comes across our desk. But, but yeah, there's opportunity. I mean, we just, I guess we just closed on three downtown condos to turn them into fully furnished corporate units. And looking for more. I mean, it's price points downtown have gone just nuts. The same thing with Huntsville, but just trying to take advantage of those marketplaces and, and deploy some of our own capital to come up with that. But ultimately, I, I think I think it goes back to the majority of property managers are not operating in the same space. They're they're operating with the accidental landlords because I you know paying attention nationally and the bulk of like our membership, even in NARPM, the bulk of those operators are operating, you know, 300 unit portfolios and they're focused on accidental landlords. And with that, that's a whole different. All you see clientele. is the, the danger in that case. I think. Yeah. You're just, you're just seeing individual property and you're really not diving all the way into cash flow. All they're really seeing is these are the expenses we take out every month. And this is the check or ACH that I send the owner at the end of the month. That's all they see. They don't see everything else. And they're making $50 a month. Right. I mean, somebody posted on one of the property manager Facebook (laughs) pages this week, actually. They were like, how many of you invest in in real estate? And and I was surprised. There were like 68 or nine responses and there were only about 20. So not even a third. So we'll, you know, we'll say less than a third, probably closer to a quarter might invest. I do think that is part of that that makeup model of, of how you're operating. And if you're dealing with investors, you're more prone to buy your own investment properties. And particularly when you get into the model where you're doing rehabs and you're, you know, you're able to go out and lay eyes on a property or better yet, you're you're able to take information on a computer and just analyze it at your desk and determine an approximate within probably 10% of what you're actually going to spend on that property to determine what your rehab costs are and build out your entire formula that way. That's the beauty of it, but that takes practice and a lot so of experience. It's education. It it's is an education piece. So that, that's the reason is as many property managers as there are, not all of them understand every aspect of things. I mean, I know there's people in, in our offices that don't understand why everything that we do is why we do it. They do it because that's what we're supposed to do, but not everybody un, not everybody has that. Yeah, they don't understand why we went from A to B to C. It's, that's that what way. they're supposed to do. That's what their job is. Okay. And so it takes someone that, that understands things from a bigger picture and is educate, intentionally educated on this is how investing makes sense in real estate as opposed to, because I think a lot of that, that typical model is a buy in a nice area and then let it be a nice secure area. Because there's, when you tell them, the way that a lot of people are investing right now are in higher risk zones, higher risk areas. You're saying risk right off the stop, right off the start of it. So, uh, I don't want any risk. Well, there is risk. You're investing. That's what that is. You have all the tools and all the knowledge right here to make it the least risk possible, but it's always going to be a risk. What if somebody burns it down? Well, somebody burns it down. You have insurance. What if it doesn't rent? Well, it doesn't rent. Do this right and you'll be fine. And it's, it's getting past those lack of confidence. That's the answer. Lack, lack of confidence in education is what. That, the other that piece that I would it. add to that would be, you know, there are some groups that do it well and some that do not. But don't hire, but build a team. That makes sense. You're not hiring a gun for hire in a property manager or a real estate agent or a contractor. You're building a team with one centralized mission. So, understanding that there's a difference between those two things and having transparency and honesty between all team members, that's how you're successful. And that's, that's what most people can't quite piece all that together. Yeah. You guys kind of nailed, you know, what, what we're kind of compiling as a couple of the major things that are stopping 
real estate professionals from investing in real estate. One of them certainly is knowledge. And you know, that's something that we really hope to help with. The other, Jonathan, you mentioned is time, especially being a property manager. Just there's never enough time in the day to get no. all your stuff. It's just like, okay, what stuff can I just push off until at some point in the future? Yeah, what what is currently on honest. fire? What is on fire? That's what I'm going to go yeah. do. Well, yeah. the, the balance in that is trying to get from where you're, and it took, it took me several years to get from reactive to proactive yeah. and, yep. and turning that cycle. But man, there, there are so many property managers out there that are stuck in that reactive cycle. And that's all they can do is put out fires all day. And, and it's, you know, they're just, their heads on a swivel. They, you know, they have no time to focus on. Oh, I was going to say, if you're, if you're doing that all week long, by the time it gets to Friday afternoon, you you're really do need that. You really do need that drink. You need time to invest. You're, you need time to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one of the big time savers that recently Brian and I both did is we got Calendly accounts. I'll call you if you have time to speak with me, we can figure out exactly what you need to work through. And it's just, it's organized my days in a way that I'm not putting out fires anymore. It's not, oh, I hadn't called this guy back yet. Did he schedule? It's scheduled. It's scheduled right here. This time of day, I know I've got to call this person. I've got to be here. I just schedule it. That way it keeps me from missing uh, it, something. It's just an expectation as well for your potential client who may become your client to say that, hey, we're professionals. We're not, you know, fly by the seat of your pant organization or, or, or an individual. I'm not and just sitting around waiting on your call. <laughs> that's where a lot of owners, you know, just don't fully understand the sophistication of a, just a best in class operator doing property management very well and understanding the importance of that piece. I believe that it's just all a lack of knowledge because you just mentioned how you can save so much time scheduling appointments using Calendly. There are, you know, hundreds of other ways to, save time and it just comes down to knowledge like in the money piece as well like as a property manager how many investors do you know how many investors do you know that would hundreds. invest with you and <laughs> yeah like yeah, there's there's hundreds of ways to come up with money i mean that's, that's yeah. the money i mean money's not even on there there's 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 so many options that you have to, to well, do it's like my partner's uh, sure. strategy has always been use other people's money. Yeah. Why, why would so, you ever use your own yeah, money? Why use your own Come money? On. You can start using your own money, but you need to ultimately you need to be using other people's money. So you can pull your own money further out. So, and just multiply that. And it's worked for him. For, he, he's older than I am. I mean, he's been doing it for decades and done extremely well with, with it. But that's, that's kind of my philosophy as well. It's like, you know, the thing is you tie all your wealth up in a couple properties and you're kind of stuck with a couple properties. Exactly. So, yeah. I did this twice. Who ends up with a million dollars cash to buy all these? <laughs> Nobody, they don't have a million dollars cash. What are you talking about? You've got, they had 10 grand and bought five properties. What do you, yeah. come on now. I mean, we, we know people that, that's, you know, they, it's important to them to own it and, and you know, just be collecting we, that mailbox money. <laughs> you're right. There's some, yeah. but there's, there's, it's calculated risk. And so I think everybody's afraid to make that mortgage payment if they don't collect their rent, right? That's, that's the, I'm losing money. Are you? And it's back to that knowledge piece. You have to be smart enough or you have to educate yourself enough to prepare. If you're prepared, if you walk in going, I'm going to pay three months of mortgage. I, I know that from the start before I start getting a rent check that's going to be covering my mortgage payment. You can, you can plan for that. You can schedule that in your brain. You know what you're doing. All right, I'm going to go there. I've got this much work. I've got to get done to this property. Now it's rent ready at this time. The days on market are this many days. I'm going to price it slightly below market value so that maybe I can get it lower than those days on market. But ultimately, I'm going to plan for three months worth of mortgage that I've got to pay. All right, great. Let's get that money set aside. Now let's go buy the property. I've got the property. Work it. Then at month four, when it's paying, then you're you're exactly where you were supposed to be anyways. Yeah, and people, so you don't need any more money than you already planned for. Now you're only making money. Yeah. And, yeah. and the other piece of it is that's really important to me because we hear it all the time and, and people that kind of miss, misstep on this, but having that cash reserve. So if you have something that does take place unexpectedly, being able to handle it. I mean, we, gosh, I've got some very high end houses with a couple different investment groups. And it's amazing if somebody's late on the rent, it's like, you know, how, how 
torque that these guys become because it's like, oh, I, I need to rent, pay my mortgage. It's like, well, it, you know, you need to subscribe to this education piece where you need to have some cash reserve in reserve, be able to handle these unforeseen situations. So that's, to me, that's where it's important you deploy your own wealth to be able to yeah. weather those storms. Even matters even more during COVID. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you guys still have an eviction moratorium, but we do. We do and it's <laughs> through the end of July. And, you know, there's, there's a percentage of our portfolio that's just not paying. And right. if you didn't have cash reserves, if there's no way to maintain that portfolio. If you had the idea of a long-term hold, you know, you need to have a cash reserve to be able to, to sustain yourself mm-hmm. through the tough times. And that's one of the things that we've learned is that if you're only investing, you know, onesie, twosie, maybe in one property five years ago and one, one property in the next 10 years, like that's more of the accidental landlord kind of mindset. Whereas right. an investor is always investing and they're focusing on that deal analysis process where they're constantly finding the right property so that they can create that value on the purchase or create the value on the purchase and the project that they're going to complete to add value to the property so that, you know, now they have an asset that they bought for say 80,000 and it's worth 150,000 because they invested that 20 grand into it. And that's, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, I hate to run, but well, I was gonna uh, my, say, my boss gonna, is saying about five minutes. So. We, we've we've got we've got four questions that we come to at the end. So I'll okay. I'll start you guys off. What's one piece of advice you would give to your twenty five year old self? Mine is patience, grasshopper. So <laughs> you know, just guys, I have a personal belief that I give to all my team members as I hire them, and it's really. You know, I go back to my grandfather again. So my grandfather always told me, and I know you guys have heard this, but, you know, you have two ears and one mouth, use them proportionally. And being able to listen to people, not assuming you know what they're looking for, but understand it by listening to what they're telling you, determining the direction of, of your discussion, your education, the building of your business. And that, you know, I think when I was younger, I wanted to prove myself early on and kind of display my knowledge as I came upon it. But just understanding that, you know, to really be a professional at what you do and, and have people understand it, it's really just to listen to what they're trying to tell you. That's the one piece of advice I would give myself. I mean, that's way better advice than what I was going to say about 25 minutes. <laughs> I'm also older than you, as you pointed that's out. That's a good point. I mean, I was just going to simply say, don't drink that. Whatever's in your hand, <laughs> sit it down for a minute. But I mean, realistically, when I was 25 years old, I was just trying to grasp what real estate investment was. And I was so far away from it and was scared of it. I mean, I was in that space that we were talking about with what's stopping people from investing. I wasn't confident in it because I didn't have that data. If I was going to go back to my 25-year-old self and tell them anything, first thing would be to call Brian Jenkins. The second thing would be to, to gather more data. I've like had the same cell number for about that long. I know. That's my point. It's only been 10 <laughs> years. It's 11 years. Just get myself in NARPM would have saved me so much time and effort. That's all another topic. I mean, it really is. But getting with people that know what you're trying to do and do that. Find someone that's doing what you wish you were doing. There's great advice. And go and hang out with them. Yeah, I mean, that's, I managed for a decade before I came across NARP and looking for software. And it's like, once I did, it's like, holy cow. You know, the wealth of knowledge and operators and ability and willingness to share has been instrumental in, in my professional life. Cool. All right. So our next question is for each of you is what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Growing up, or in high school, or in college, or just out of you know, mine was you know growing up in West Virginia. My very first entrepreneurial project was actually the resale of blackberries. Oh, that's pretty yeah, close to what so, I got. Right? Um, my grandmother, my grandmother was an elementary school cook and made the most fabulous blackberry jam. She made a lot of different things, but that jam and pies were her specialty. Cobbler. So we would 
and my dad in the automotive parts stores, he would get brand new paint cans. We'd put the handles on them, go up in the woods, just pick these berries by the gallons, come back, sell some of them by the gallon, you know, pay my grandmother a portion of the proceeds if she'd make jam or, or cobbler so we could resell that. And how much know, of it did you eat? Early on, quite a bit. <laughs> but as the businessman side of me started to develop, it's like, I like, I like this monthly. I can yeah, do a little bit more stuff. than just eat yeah. blackberry stuff. So but that was my first experience. And, and I grew up with, I mean, my parents are entrepreneurs. They've been working together since I was physically working together since I was a junior in high school. And I won't tell you how many years ago that was, but it's been a while. And then my wife and I work together, which, you know, takes a special relationship. Now, Jonathan's wife works here, so they're in the same building as well. And not everybody can pull that off. Most of my friends are like, dude, I don't know how you do it. Because if I was around my wife that long, one of us would probably kill each other. So We have good wives, Brian. It's helpful. Our wives are pretty great. Brian, I was going to ask a quick little follow-up question. Did you solicit any of your friends to help you pick blackberries? You know, the funny thing is, is I've got a huge family. So occasionally you get a friend, but more often than not, it was, I've got three brothers. We had probably immediately around us at least 15 cousins. And, you know, we just had the whole clan just, you know, yeah. we had acres and acres of land between my grandfather's land and, and our neighbors. And we used to help, gosh, they used to develop or bale hay and fix fence and, you know, do all the things on the farm starting at 13. Cause I realized we were having a discussion the other morning. It's like, my parents would buy me school clothes, but it was never the cool stuff. So when I got to be that age, it's like my mom's like, okay, if you want to buy this stuff, you got to earn your own money, which is the best thing she could have done for me. Cause I, I did that and I bought my own clothes that I wanted to wear. So the, that's kind of what drove me. But that was, you know, realistically from about the age of probably 11 forward, it, there was an emphasis from my parents teaching entrepreneurial skills. Nice. So I think if we're going to just say the first entrepreneurial venture I've ever had. Doesn't mean most successful, does it? No, not the most successful. I mean, don't 95% of small businesses fail? Well, this one (laughs) failed for sure, boys. So when I was in middle school and high school, I mean, I I played football from the age of I can carry a football till I broke my neck playing football and I couldn't do it anymore. So when I was in middle school, I was running back. I ran like 12 miles a day. I could not keep weight on. And so school lunches were never even close to enough. Even at, you know, 12, 13 years old, they just, they were not enough for me. So I would make a sandwich because my parents owned a college, which in turn owned a bakery, which makes this unfair. Just flat out, it makes it unfair that I had this advantage. But I had fresh baked bread, artisanal bread, all the time at my house. Those made excellent sandwiches. Mm. So <laughs> they made excellent sandwiches. So I made my own sandwiches on my way to school. I mean, and I'd have like a you know ham and pastrami and salami and provolone cheese and Munster cheese and some special aioli on some like nice what? freshly baked sourdough bread. I'd bring it to school. My friends were like, what is that? And where can I get one? I was like, I can make you one for $5. And so I did. Come to find out, my mom told me like a few months later, like, you know, those sandwiches are like $12 a piece to actually make. <laughs> You're selling for $5? I was like, oh, well, I've got, I've got some cash. And she's just like, come on, man, get out of here. You can't, because I mean, it, they were, there was, there was an inch and a half of just like deli meat. On like the Dagwoods. Oh my God. Yeah. But I made them for, I literally, I made them for my friends and sold them. And my mom just was like, whatever, you're an idiot. That's all right. All right. We got two more questions. Ridiculous. The first of the two is how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, for me personally, I think both have actually shaped me more toward that investor, intentional investor, made me a better business person. And I go back to the 10 years prior to finding Arpum, prior to getting into leadership and des- designation tracks and that sort of thing and just really pouring into it it really was a completely different business model. And looking at it, if anyone looked at our company then and now, it's almost unrecognizable, the difference between the two. Mine's pretty simple. I mean, my formal real estate education taught me how to not get sued selling houses. It's that informal. I started working with investors and then came to start working with Brian and that's changed everything of how I do all kinds of businesses because it's someone that's not teaching me a curriculum, someone that's teaching me real world 
because he's the Brian's done it. There's nothing in property management that Brian hasn't done. It's real easy to learn from him, and that's whether you call it formal or not. It's, uh, yeah, that's the informal part. You know, formal formal training. I've got a degree in biblical theology, which <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm that helps out your real estate career every day. Doesn't it, it? It, it, it certainly <laughs> does. It really does. So, especially in the patience <laughs> compartment. But yeah, I mean, you know, you know how it is. I mean, you're in the business, and part of the time you're counsel. You're counseling tenants, you're counseling owners. Patience is a must. You know, you can't be, you can be quick-witted, but you can't be quick-tempered. That's an important piece yeah. of the business. So, but that's that's what has shaped me. So I think all of it has come together and made me obviously who I am today. So, Cool. All right. And our final question, what was your Moby Dick of real estate or business or just that one big opportunity that got away? Oh, the one that got away. One that got away. It still may circle back to us so we see the great white whale again. But it's never gone. It's never out of COVID. COVID kind of killed it. We came into 2020. We were on fire January, February, and we had expectations and commitments to add 700 properties into our management portfolio in Birmingham alone. We had 117 addresses under contract yes. on February yes. 4th or something. Yeah, and all that fell apart. Now, we we were able to salvage and, and come up. You know, we added close to 225 properties last year, but well off the mark where we were at 700. And the opportunities that came with that because we were, like I said, we had one large contract, another one we were working and just a lot of cash to work with. And that kind of availability or the availability of credit to some of the individuals that we were dealing with on large scale, you know, a lot of those lenders went dark for a while. <laughs> so some of that money was not available and then they, they kind of reopened with different terms. So, and we saw some portfolio deals that just fell apart and particularly the ones we had under contract just, you know, it's this backup and punt. So that's probably my Moby Dick. And, and again, I think that Guys, it's my Moby uh, I think Dick it'll come back. I, I think maybe Moby will be a little, a little slimmer, maybe not quite as big as he once was. Well, no. Okay. So what it is, is it's, it's multitudes of it's, we have the knowledge of expressing what is available in Birmingham. That's what we did. That's how like we created this Moby Dick of a, of a whale. It was Brian and I did a really good job of, you know, you should, you should buy in Birmingham, Alabama. And this is why. And a handful of investors were like, yeah, you're right. Here's lots and lots of money that we want to put in there. Let's find these deals. So we had them all. It was just that money dried up from the lending and from the investors that they had. And we still are working with the, with the clients. We still have the clients. We just got to get that back up. Yeah. Bang, banks. Just got to get that flywheel started again, huh? Yeah, man. It's rough. Well, cool. Well, guys, really appreciate you coming on. Like, we had a great conversation today. Really, it was super fun. So, yeah, it's, it's been great. Do you guys have a sign off line for your podcast yet? No. <laughs> can, we, can we use ours today? <laughs> sure. Go for it. <laughs> All right. So, ours is until next time, keep buying, keep learning, and keep earning. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.